History. History. Through the eyes of those who lived it. This is Hometown Heroes. Presented on the air and online by Provident Payments. Proudly honoring the men and women whose service and sacrifice have secured our freedom. Now, the host of Hometown Heroes, Paul Leffler. Welcome to another edition of Hometown Heroes, the program that reminds you no matter where you live in this great country of ours, no matter how big or how small your hometown might be, there are stories there that should not go untold. One thing we've learned is they don't have to go untold. Sometimes all it takes is for somebody to take a little initiative, to ask a few questions, and then invest a little time to listen as memories from long ago take on new meaning in the here and now. We want to honor our veterans for their service and sacrifice. We want to preserve their stories so we never forget the price that's been paid for our freedom. And along the way, not only are we educated, not only are we entertained, but so often we find ourselves inspired by these stories from our greatest generation. Some of the most captivating stories we've heard over the years are those shared by Pearl Harbor survivors. And Thursday, December 7th, marked the 82nd anniversary of that fateful Sunday morning. When I first started interviewing World War II vets a couple decades ago, just about every community had an active local chapter of the Pearl Harbor Survivors Association. But time marches on, and this year the official commemoration on Oahu had just six survivors in attendance. We're going to hear a few highlights from that ceremony today, and also some memories from men who were there 82 years ago. If you'd like to watch the entire live stream of that commemoration at Pearl Harbor, I have it linked for you at hometownheroesradio.com. As they gathered near the USS Arizona Memorial, the very last survivor of that battleship's crew delivered a message remotely from his home in California. Luke Hunter is now 102 years old, and he kept his greeting brief. Aloha. I wish I was there with you, Daniel, and all of your friends and your cadets. There's one thing you've got to remember, and that is remember Pearl Harbor. Thank you. Thank you to Luke Hunter. Tom Leatherman is the superintendent of the Pearl Harbor National Memorial for the National Park Service. He underscored the purpose of the memorial and the importance of extending its legacy long after every survivor is gone. Although Lou was not able to join us, like so many other people around the country, we hope that they are watching us live streamed on this program in the safety of their homes. Although it would be nice to have everyone here to attend, our legacy of hope does not require us to all be in one place to keep the history and memories alive. Together, we can continue to honor those who served and sacrificed by sharing the diverse stories and history related to the events from before, during, and after December 7th and the U.S. involvement in World War II. The legacy of hope at Pearl Harbor will be shared at this site and beyond for all time. We must never forget those who came before us and the events that led to this day 82 years ago so that we can chart a more just and peaceful path for those who follow. I challenge each and every one of you to carry on the legacy of hope from Pearl Harbor, sharing the stories of valor and sacrifice you hear today with your friends and families and instilling a sense of respect and inspiration in future generations. Only then will we truly honor those who lost their lives. 2,403 Americans lost their lives that day, almost half that total aboard the USS Arizona. Don Stratton came oh so close to adding to that number, and he would have if not for the heroics of Joe George, a sailor aboard the USS Vestal who helped save his life. 
Stratton's book, All the Gallant Men, is one of the best first-hand accounts of that day of infamy that you can find. The episode we recorded with Don in Colorado Springs before his passing is one of the most frequently visited at hometownheroesradio.com. December 7, 1941, was a day he thought about every day for the rest of his life. Oh, it was nothing. It was just quarter for muster, and then we had chow, and then we had colors and whatever, so... Just a normal day for us. So what was the first indication that it wasn't a normal day? Well, it was just uh, we had <laughs> a little notice there, and they had the sound gentle quarters, and we, everybody was on duty. So here and there, and uh, on board ship, my battle station was a side setter in the port anti-aircraft guns on the port side. And that was up about... 55, 60 feet in the air on a tripod mast on the foremast. And people hear you say that, and maybe some of them have already read your book, All the Gallant Men, or they've seen one of your interviews or heard you before. But when people imagine that morning and they think about you being in that position, that many feet in the air with these Japanese planes coming in and bombs dropping, I'm sure they say, how in the world did you survive? You ever wonder that yourself? Well, it had to be a lot of to do with the good Lord, I guess. And uh, But we were kind of trapped up there. We got out of the director and on the deck there, and the, the vessel was alongside a repair ship, and we got a hold of a seaman there that threw us a heaving line with a... That's a line with a lead on the end to, to stretch it out, and they... small line, and then he added a big, heavier line, and we pulled that across, and we tied it off on the Arizona, and we started hand over hand across it. And we we were already burnt. I was burned like over 60% of my body, I guess, at that time. And how did how did that occur? You were in that position on the foremast when well, the big the, explosion the, happened? The bomb that hit on the starboard side behind number two turret went into a million pounds of ammunition, and it blew up. And... Uh, it just was a fireball that just engulfed us up there where we were at, and no way to escape or get off. So until uh, we got the line there to go hand over hand across, we'd, we were kind of just stymied up there, and we finally got off. Six of us went across there. And I know you're not into uh, getting all syrupy and sappy, but I'm just trying to imagine what those moments were like when, when you're engulfed in flames and your flesh is burning and you're trapped and you can't go anywhere. What do you do? <laughs> you try to figure out what to do. That's it. Are you looking around? Are you watching what's happening? Are you closing your eyes and praying? I mean, No, you're just trying to get out of the way from the flames and thinking about how the hell am I going to get out of here. So if that seaman hadn't had that idea to tie that line. Well, we, we kind of indicated that we wanted to get off of there and he... So he threw us a heaver line, which is a small line, and then tied on the heavier line, and it was about probably 65, 70 feet across there, and we had to go hand over hand across there. So already you said 60-plus percent of your body had been burned. So is that upper body, lower body? Well, the whole body, everything. But your hands were okay? My hands were burnt. <laughs> I don't even have any fingerprints. Well, was that from the explosion, or was that from going was, down that line? That was both. So your hands are burnt, and then you have to hold on to a line or else you're going to fall to your death. Right. With hands that are already burnt, and I can't imagine what that feels like, the pain that you must have been experiencing. Or did the adrenaline take over? Well, 
<laughs> it's just self-preservation. So you get down to that other ship, the Vestal, which is next to the Arizona. I've interviewed a couple guys who were on that ship, and they've described what your ship looked like. But once you got aboard on the Vestal, there's still a lot going on probably. What did you see from there? Well, they just we stood around there for quite a while. The Vestal was busy with firing their guns and whatever and trying to get away from the side of the Arizona and the explosion. And they finally got us in the shore boat and took us to the beach, and they picked us up in an open-air truck and took us to the hospital. And how long were you in the hospital? A year. That's a long time. That's a long time. wasn't quite that long. It was like till the next September. And I'm sure, well, I've read some of your story. I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I want to understand how you experienced it. So very few people alive experienced what you experienced. You're in all this pain, and you know you're going to recover. But was it a daily basis in those days that followed that you were learning of other guys that you knew from the ship who didn't make it? Well, we most generally figured that, but there was a, a few ex-sailors in the hospital with us and everything, So, but we knew we'd suffered a devastating hit in a lot of casualties, and, but it took a lot of baths, of saltwater baths, and a lot of healing, and a lot of, a lot of patience. And a little, a little. Yeah, where did that come from? You're a pretty young guy. You haven't been through a whole lot until this. Well... You do what you have to do. Did your parents know you were alive, or did that take a while? No, that they didn't. They got a notice that I hadn't made, didn't make it, and then they got a notice that I did. So, but they they sent us back to Mare Island Hospital and went through a lot of skin grafts and a lot of a lot of stuff, stuff a lot of baths and a lot of skin grafts, a lot of a lot of time laying. We they put us in a on a bunk and put a canopy over the top of us and covered the canopy with a blanket and put light bulbs in the canopy to keep us warm and kept the burns open to the healing air. I wanted to go back into the Navy, so I went back after I was home for about a year, and my whole left side healed up really much from the medical discharge. So I re-enlisted and went back in, and they put me on a well, I went to boot camp again because I hadn't caught up on my shots and stuff. And I went to island there in the bay, and they put me aboard a destroyer, DD-406 USS Stack, S-T-A-C-K. And we headed for the South Pacific right away. And we were in on the invasion of the land in New Guinea and a couple of islands offshore there. And we went to Guadalcanal, picked up troops to put in the Philippines and the Lady, and we were in the Battle of Lady Gulf, and we were in the Battle of Luzon Gulf, and we were in, we led all the invasions in with the minesweeps, and the destroyers protecting them, and, uh, and finally Okinawa, and we were on pick of a patrol 300 miles north of Okinawa between there and Japan, and uh, for the kamikazes coming down, let them know down below that they were on their way in. That was kind of hazardous. We lost five ships one night there. And one time there was over a thousand or a hundred ships and sunken damaged in Karamret or Wise Man Cove and at that time. And then they sent me back to the States and the war was over and I had a game. And I understand that you lived that and that you've told your story many times. So that is 
in a way, old hat to you. But you do understand how crazy that sounds to most people, right? That you were burned over the majority of your body. You still don't have any feeling in your fingers that you haven't had for 75 years. You're recovering for a year in the hospital. You've been medically discharged. But you sign up to go back, and you end up fighting the rest of the war. Why? Why was that so important to you? Well, it's just one of those things that happens, I guess. Was it? Felt like I, maybe I should be there, but I, whatever happened, but that's the way it worked. And the title of your book is All the Gallant Men, and you're honoring those who died December 7th and really the 406,000 Americans who died in the war. But it strikes me that just that action you took, I mean, you are the gallant man. Did, did you feel that you were doing something no. beyond what was asked of you? No, the heroes were still out there. Still on your ship. Yeah. What did your parents think when you re-enlisted? Well, actually, they didn't want me to go, but they said, if that's what you're made up your mind to do, it's your life to live. Did you feel that you were avenging the deaths of your shipmates? Not really. It was just the thing that surprised attacked and uh, didn't get the chance to fight back too much, so I was still in the same predicament. Uh, I loved the Navy, and I just so I went back in. Well, I'm sure you've heard a lot of people say a lot of things to you over the years, but I, I've interviewed close to a thousand World War II veterans and, and many courageous, incredible men who blow me away with their stories. But just your story and what you just shared and your determination, that's really remarkable, sir. Well, like I tell everybody, everybody had to be someplace. Yeah. And I was there. The late Don Stratton from the USS Arizona. You can link to his complete original interview at hometownheroesradio.com. It's time for our first break, but when we come back, more from the 82nd anniversary commemoration at Pearl Harbor and more memories from those who were there on that day of infamy. Hometown Heroes will be right back after this. Hey, do you ever have those moments where you realize you've been settling for less than the best for way too long? Sometimes we just accept the status quo without looking around for better ways to do things. And I got to tell you, when it comes to your money, I think I've found a better way with EECU. Just take a look at myeecu.org and I think you'll see why. EECU is not a bank. It's a not-for-profit credit union that's all about taking care of you, the member. That's one of the reasons EECU just keeps growing and growing. Over 350,000 members now in 12 different California counties and access to more than 30,000 co-op ATMs and free online and mobile banking. But what I love most is how EECU always goes above and beyond to serve the community. A decade ago, the leadership and generosity of EECU helped establish Central Valley Honor Flight. By the end of this year, more than 1,800 veterans will have seen their memorials in Washington, D.C. for free. And that's just one example of the community involvement that EECU takes oh so seriously. Pick up the phone and become a member today. 1-800-538-3328. That's 1-800-538-3328. Proudly presented by Provident Payments, this is Hometown Heroes. Celebrating everyday Americans who answer the call of duty. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. 
And so it has for 82 years. Welcome back to this special edition of Hometown Heroes. More memories from Pearl Harbor survivors to come. But first, another excerpt from this year's commemoration ceremony on Oahu. Admiral John C. Aquilino is the commander of the United States Indo-Pacific Command. Okay, we do this every year, but it is not a normal day. It's just not another day we come up and remember. What I want you to do today with me is as you look out over the water, envision what it would have been like. There are uh, numerous veterans here that got to watch it in person. For the rest of us, I want you to imagine it. 82 years ago on this day, Sunday morning, a day a lot like today with the trade winds partly cloudy, 71 degrees. And what was seen? The sight of enemy aircraft, fires on ships, buildings, people running frantically, people sweating, covered in blood. That was real that day. The sounds of propellers whizzing, gunfire bursts, bullets striking metal, pavement, people, alarms going off. That was real. The smell of a battle, black smoke, burning rubber, fuel, gunpowder. That was real. The emotional feelings that only you have witnessed and experienced and we can only imagine of shock, fear, terror, confusion, sorrow, anger, and despair. Those were real for you. Today's survivors and the team who supported that war effort experienced it. But we have to imagine it, and we have to never forget it. The greatest generation is with us here today. World War II veterans, Rosie the Riveter's team who supported the war effort, we are humbled by your presence and thankful for your service and sacrifice. The commitment and courage of that team is what we all strive for today. I told you to imagine it. I ask you to talk to them later and hear it directly from them. Mr. Ed Carroll, 98 years old, came here from Utah to be here for this day. During the attack, he was a 16-year-old airplane mechanic on Ford Island. He watched the USS Arizona take a hit. He grabbed his rifle and stood the duty and defended this island and our nation. During the war, he became a Navy pilot to continue the fight, just from a different seat. Kenneth Stevens, 100 years old, came here from Oregon today. During the attack, he was on USS Whitney. It took strafing gunfire, and he immediately manned his battle station. Amid the fire and smoke on his ship, he helped his buddies swim through the black tar-like oil to safety. Ira Eichschaub, 103, also came from Oregon. He was 21 years old, a a musician in the band aboard the USS Dobbin. When the attack came, He began saving and rescuing survivors and took those casualties ashore. Herbert Elfring, 101, came from Michigan. An Army private in the 251st Artillery Regiment. During the attack, he was over at Barber's Point. As enemy bullets strafed the camp, they missed him by just a number of feet. Harry Chandler, 102, 
came here from Florida today. Harry wanted to join the Navy so bad he enlisted before graduating high school. And during the attack, he was a corpsman at the Navy hospital. During the attack, he rushed to the hospital amongst all of the carnage and delivered medical care who all, for all who needed it. Sterling Kale, 102 and a Hawaii local. He's the last survivor that lives here on, Hawaii, on Oahu. During the attack, he was 20 and a Navy pharmacist. He also just finished the Navy Frogman course on underwater demolition. He and his teammates rescued 46 sailors from the burning waters of, of Oklahoma and Arizona. And after the attack, he helped bring forward 100 of those sailors who had given their lives from the, the wreck of, of Arizona. He also served as a corpsman in the 1st Marine Division, and he deployed to Guadalcanal, where he there saved and, and triaged both Marines and Japanese sailors and prisoners. Lastly, he shifted to the Army and he fought in the Korean War and the Vietnam War. Our other World War II veterans in attendance, Bob Lee, Art Shack, Archie Holte, Cash Barber, John Hamamoto, Alan Chatwin, Joe Maxfeld, Wendell Newman, and Rosie the Riveter team, Gene Gibson, Marion Wynn, Caroline Kilgore, Lucille McDonald, Clarice Lafrendiere, Dolores Leonard, Delphine Claput, Virginia Bassler. We honor your service to our nation, and we must never forget it. There were many things that today we look back on and try to remember and learn from Pearl Harbor. First, victory was not certain, not by any means. And while our nation was surprised, the courage of our military responders sitting here today makes us understood they were ready to fight with what they had. And I think if you'd talk to them, they'd send these message to us. Number one, remember Pearl Harbor. Number two, keep America alert. Number three, constant vigilance is needed to defend our nation and our way of life. And lastly, we must be ready to fight and win. Today, for those of us in uniform who serve and for those civilian warriors who support our incredible Department of Defense, we stand on the shoulders of these giants in front of us. Today, the joint force, made up of soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, Coast Guardsmen, Indians, we operate every day alongside our allies and partners to defend democracy and to ensure a free and open Indo-Pacific.
For those veterans and Rosie the Riveters who sit here today, our message to you is we are vigilant. We are ready. We will never forget. And today, we stand the watch. We're honored to be in your presence. Thank you very much. Again, that was Admiral John C. Aquilino, leader of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. A few hours after that ceremony on the 82nd anniversary, some of the ashes of Jack Holder were spread at the site of the sunken USS Utah. Holder, who went on to become a decorated World War II pilot, was on Ford Island on December 7, 1941. He passed away shortly after attending last year's Pearl Harbor ceremony. One of the few Pearl Harbor survivors who's still with us 82 years later is Bill Pratt of Fresno, California, who's going to celebrate his 102nd birthday next week at a Pearl Harbor commemoration at the Clovis Veterans Memorial District on the 82nd anniversary. I had the privilege of sharing highlights of several Pearl Harbor survivors' experiences that they've shared with me over the years, and the audience there heard these recollections from Bill, who was aboard the only battleship to get underway in the harbor on that day of infamy, the USS Nevada. At the beginning, I heard the uh, planes. The dive bombers were diving on the scene. You could hear the engine labor to come out of the dive, but planes would practice in the uh, peacetime. They would dive on us and, and just for practice. And I didn't know whether it was that or it was a real thing, but it was a real thing. You could hear them, the planes dive, and when, when they come out of the dive, they dropped their bomb. Well, the engine would make a, a labor of noise that you could hear, and I could hear that down the engine room. So when did it sink in for you that this was the real thing, that, that you were at war? Well... I don't know. I I went to my battle station. I began to feel the ship getting hit, and it would either shake or it would lift over at one side, or it would do something when a bomb would hit. You knew it. It was Sunday morning. I didn't have anything to do. I was just laying around in the quarters. Of course, I began to hear bombs going off, but I didn't know there were bombs. And, and one of them hit our ship, and then it shook it. And I started to go up on top side and see what was going on when general quarters sounded. So I had to go down the engine room. I had my battle station was back in the shaft alley. It was scary for me because I was down there by myself. Then uh, the lights went out. We got generators got hit, and and the power was off for a while. The lights went out everywhere on the ship. But I was backing that out shaft alley by myself. <laughs> it was dark and it was scary because. Uh, I didn't know what was going on. Knew the ship was listed to the port side. We had been hit on the port side. The torpedo planes had got to the port side, and that's what I was noticing. Uh, the ship was listed to the port side. We'd already heard that it was the Oklahoma that capsized. The USS Oklahoma was hit on the port side, and they capsized. The thing turned bottom side up. I thought the end had come, and you're sitting there in the darkness by yourself. I really thought it was over, and, and of course you do a lot of things. You even pray that uh, you'll get out there. And uh, well, I could do nothing but sit there and wait, because I was in the darkness. 
I couldn't see what it was doing anyhow. And we didn't know, I didn't know where the water was leaking in the back compartment, but it wasn't. It was, it was leaking into compartments beyond me. The compartment I was in didn't take on any water. But anyhow, we had to stay there. Finally, the lights come back on. They got the generators running. They got the lights back on. They uh, assessed the damage, and they let me out of the shaft alley. They opened the door and called me out. I was glad to get out of there, too. It is just a, a helpless feeling that you realize you're in a situation you can't do anything about. This thing was coming upon you. And you expect to die. You don't think you're going to get out of it alive because it looks bad at first. That's the kind of situation I was in. It looked very bad at first. But as things developed, it began to look better. And we had assistance from other ships in the fleet and other departments that helped us. I don't know. You just quit worrying, I guess, and go along with the program. Pearl Harbor survivor Bill Pratt from the USS Nevada, and I trust you'll join me in wishing him a very happy 102nd birthday next week. It's time for our final break, but when we come back, the keynote address from this year's ceremony at Pearl Harbor from a 29-year-old Marine Corps pilot with a pretty special connection to December 7th, 1941. Hometown Heroes will be right back after this. When times get tough and budgets get tight, a lot of businesses start slashing their marketing budgets, which all too often turns into a costly mistake. Instead, what if you could customize that investment to zero in on your target audience with surgical precision? And why am I saying what if? Because I already know you can with search strategy marketing. It's not about how much you spend, it's about the strategy behind it. And Search Strategy Marketing is ready to prove it to you with a free, no-obligation assessment of your current efforts. Learn how to outrank your competition with a free, customized action plan just for Hometown Heroes listeners. Just go to HometownHeroesRadio.com and click on that light bulb logo for Search Strategy Marketing. It doesn't matter what your business is, Search Strategy Marketing can lead you to the best way to connect with your customers. So look for that light bulb logo today at hometownheroesradio.com and plug into the power that can take your business to the next level. When prices start going up, we all look for ways to save. So here's a simple message for you. Look no further than EECU. Did you know you can finance your mortgage through EECU? How about a home equity line of credit? EECU makes HELOC loans easy. And when the car business is all over the map, the auto loan rates are as steady as can be. EECU is a not-for-profit credit union, not a bank. So the members always win. Go to myeecu.org to become a member today or call one 800 53 Honoring veterans from sea to shining sea, you're listening to Hometown Heroes with Paul Leffler, brought to you by this local station and its sponsors, and presented everywhere, on the air and online, by Provident Payments, one of the fastest growing payment consultants in America. Connect today at ProvidentPayments.com. Welcome back to Hometown Heroes and a special episode in honor of the 82nd anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. 
The tie that I wore this December 7th belonged to a very special Pearl Harbor survivor named Mickey Ganich. His widow Barbara gave it to me after his passing, and that's not the only way she has extended Mickey's legacy. Barbara was the keynote speaker on Pearl Harbor Day at the Navy Halekeke School in Honolulu, where Mickey had made an annual habit of captivating those elementary students with his memories of December 7, 1941, aboard the battleship USS Pennsylvania. We were ready to play a game. We had a game out on the ship's football team and uh, made the first team on. I wasn't very big. I was, uh, well, I was pretty big. I was 170 pounds there. I was, that was big in those, in those days. Now, if you, you're not 250, you're, not, you're nothing there. <laughs> so I, I joined the ship's football team, and we had a great team. And we scheduled to play USS Arizona for a fleet football championship. 1 o'clock, December 7, 1941. That was going to be the Super Bowl of the Navy. It was really important there. So I was going to do a little scrimmaging and get ready for the game and leave the ship at 8 o'clock in the morning, December 7. There was no place to change clothes. A little field was close by to us there. So I had all the padding on for the tack. When the tack came there, you go to your battle station, you don't have time to change clothes or anything. So up in the crow's nest, I went in my football uniform, all my padding on there, little trap door to get up there, pulled myself through to get get up there. That was on my, my battle station. I was a lookout. Whether you're in port or not there, mm-hmm. you go where your battle station is. We'd been uh, talking for months there whether we're getting a war getting a war or not, and we figured no, no, no one would bother us there. We got eight battleships in port there. We're a powerful. A country would be crazy to try to t- attack us. If there would be any problem at all, it'd be in the Philippines, so we don't have to worry about it. So what the p- policy was during the week there, the ships would go out to sea and maneuver around the gunnery practice and all that, and be in port on the weekends there. We, the whole fleet would be in, in port practically. The only thing is, except for the aircraft carrier, aircraft carriers were not in port they were taking planes, Admiral Halsey, when his aircraft carrier group were taking planes to Midway and Wake Island, so they were not in port, fortunately, mm-hmm. because that was the reason there that they were not in port, why there was no third attack, an attack on Pearl Harbor, because the aircraft carriers were not in port. The third attack for the aircraft carriers was the number one target in the oil fields and repair facilities. Which would have crippled... If the that, if that would have happened, we would have lost the war. It been, we'd be talking Japanese now because they would have took the work was the closest oil and closest repair facilities 2,000 miles away. It would have been a, a disaster there. But we were very fortunate, but bad weather had slowed the aircraft carriers up. And they were not in port. If it had been good weather, they'd been in port, we'd have been attacked. We lost the war. It's that simple. So let's talk about how uh, the farm boy from Ohio experienced this. You just turned 22 a few weeks before that. Yeah. So you're in your football pads getting ready for a scrimmage before the big game with the Arizona at one. And what was your first indication that the Japanese were there? Well, about six minutes to eight, the phone rang. I picked up the phone. One of the fellows on the deck was up on deck of our gang, called on and said, Japanese attack in Pearl Harbor. I said, oh, come on, let's not talk about it, because we'd been talking about it for months there, but we feared there was no, no chance for us. About that time, the ship shuddered. Some of our fellows that were close to guns went to the guns and started shooting at the planes before we knew below decks knew what was going on. 
About that time, general quarters went, all hands man your battle stations. Now, get from there up to the poles there, which you, I guess you'd call it there, the mass there with the closeness, that's where I had to go. So by the time I got up there, ships were burning, planes were burning, planes were flying around there, looked close enough, you hit them with rocks, you had anything to throw at them. I, I could have thrown my binoculars at them because I was a lookout, that was all that I had up there. But by the time I got up there, just a few minutes' time, because you're going in, you're going double time or triple time, get up there in a hurry because you don't know what was going on. It was pretty hectic. Yeah. But I was well protected with all my padding on. All your football pads. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A little trap door to get through there. I pulled myself through with all the padding on. I couldn't go straight through. It wasn't that wide. So I pulled <laughs> myself through with my trap door and get up there. And it was kind of bad looking and seeing planes coming all around you. And it got pretty rough. But so it's the the, the Japanese didn't know where we were the first attack, the first attack that they had, because we weren't in our normal place. But evidently, some of the Japanese pilots reported that the aircraft carrier that there's a big ship in, in, in dry dock with two other destroyers. So the second attack, they hit us. Bomb missed me by 45 feet. Armor piercing bomb, 500 pound bomb, came on past me. I'm out of course, as it came way down, exploded way below me. If it exploded on contact, I wouldn't be here talk, talking to you. It's kind of scary to see a big, big hole alongside of you there. So but, if it had been a conventional bomb as opposed to armor piercing, it would have gone off on the deck and yeah. you would have been gonzo. Yeah. And as it stands, you're up on this crow's nest. So when that bomb detonates below deck, I'm sure that was quite an earthquake for you. Oh, it really shook me, but we didn't know where it hit because if I saw the bomb coming, I probably died right there. But it came on past me, and I saw the result of it, but I didn't see it happening. And this whole time, because of your elevated position... You're seeing a whole lot of other things. Yeah. In fact, once I want my job was to look how to report anything of interest there. I could report or, or what it is of phones among, on the ship itself. It's sound-powered phones is what it is. I would see the plane coming over the top of the buildings because the building's fairly close to us, too. I saw this plane coming over the top of the buildings. I re- reported to it there. They turned their guns around facing that direction. When he came past this building, pow, we got him. That's the only plane we, we, we knocked down there. If they had to train the guns around get the plane they never had it but they tra- had the guns trained in that direction so when the plane come over that way they got him they were ready for him and so you I gave made, him a good scouting report yeah, yeah that made me feel pretty good i did accomplish something well and if you hadn't that plane might have done something to yeah. your ship too that's right you know you hear a lot about d-day as the longest day but i'm wondering how long december 7th 1941 felt for you it felt pretty long there, but uh, we just got, because in between, there was about a 10, 15 minute gap in between the first attack and the second attack. So I had a chance to uh, look around and get below and, and change clothes, get out of my football uniform on and get in my regular clothes. And, and this, uh, you didn't really have time to think about it, but I saw the results there. 
I saw the hole alongside me where the bomb came. Saw machine gun nicks in the ladder where I climbed up to get up to the crow's nest. Whether it happened before I went up there, after I went up there, or during the time I went up, I don't, I don't know. But they didn't get me. That's kind of scary too. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> you wouldn't see what what could have happened there. But but I heard God was, had had other plans for me. He's looking out for me. The late great Mickey Ganich. And now let's hear the keynote address from the 82nd anniversary commemoration of Pearl Harbor this year, delivered by a young Marine Corps pilot named Ray Howard. When you saw the program this morning. I'm sure many of you wondered why a 29-year-old Marine Corps captain was selected to be the keynote speaker here today. And I don't blame you. Because when Mr. McCoy from the 82nd Commemoration Planning Committee asked me to speak, I wanted the same thing. One thing I knew for sure is I wasn't selected for my speaking ability. So why am I up here? Well, when Mr. McCoy informed me the theme for the Remembrance Ceremony today was Legacy of Hope. It became clear. For those of you who have read the program, bear with me. For those of you who haven't, let me introduce myself and perhaps answer that question. My name is Captain Ray Hauer. I'm a Marine Corps AVAP Harrier pilot. I'm the son of Colonel Ray Hauer, a Marine Corps F-4 Phantom Rio and F-18 Hornet pilot. I'm the grandson of Lieutenant Colonel Ray Hauer, a Marine Corps A-4 Skyhawk pilot who flew combat missions in Vietnam before losing his life in service to our country. I am also the great nephew of Lieutenant Commander Louis Contour, a Navy PBY Catalina pilot who flew in the Pacific during World War II. At 102 years old, my Uncle Lou is the last surviving crew member of the USS Arizona that lies beneath these waters. As I stand before you, I represent them and their legacy. The cufflings and captain's bars I'm wearing today are my father's. The eagle globe and anchors on my collar and cover are my grandfather's. And the wings of gold I wear upon my chest are the very wings my Uncle Lou earned on November 15, 1942. I am proud to be a third generation Marine Corps pilot and naval aviator. That is why I'm up here with you today. As you think about the theme, legacy of hope, one can't help but wonder what were the hopes of those serving in and around Pearl Harbor prior to and after the attack. I imagine as many went to sleep Saturday night, their hopes were the same as many of the service members serving all over the world today. Some went to sleep hoping for a good night's rest or simply just a good breakfast in the ship's mess in the morning. Some hope to make the service a career. Others hope to do their tour of duty and return home. I'm sure some hope the U.S. would be able to stay out of the war. Some just hope the Chicago Bears would defeat the Chicago Cardinals that Sunday. Perhaps there were even a few who had a little too much fun Saturday night, and they just hoped the room would stop spinning. But at 7.55 Sunday morning, December 7th, as these skies were blackened with the first wave of 183 Japanese aircraft. And the morning quiet was disrupted by the roar of their engines. Those hopes were dashed. As the bombs fell and their torpedoes swam through these waters en route to their target, those hopes were dashed. As the explosions began, 
and the very skies as explosions began and the skies filled with smoke and flames. And this very harbor in front of you was set ablaze. Those hopes were dashed. And the calls from the injured and dying to the commands to man battle stations and free lines to the crackling of return fire and a fleeting attempt to thwart the attack, those hopes were dashed. In a moment, the hopes of Saturday night were replaced by a new hope, a more urgent hope, the hope to survive. The next day, Congress declared war. Our nation that was not ready for and wanted no part of a war found itself at war. Our Pacific fleet had to be rebuilt and the war machine necessary to achieve victory had to be constructed. Those that survived that initial attack were joined by volunteers from across our nation. And as the stories of their courage and valor on the seas, in the skies, and on the battlefields around the globe, it brought new hope, a hope for victory. Our nation rallied behind the troops and their determination. At home from the cities, farms, and factories across our, our country, everyone was encouraged by their spirit and sacrificed to provide the materials, tools, and financial resources necessary to support the war effort. Through the hope the troops created, our nation came together as never before or since, and the greatest generation was born. Our country is united in purpose, and with the help of our allies, was ultimately victorious in turning back evil. But they weren't done. After years of war, our nation and the world needed rebuilding and healing. Those that fought for our freedom returned home and threw themselves into that task with the same determination. The legacy of hope that was born here at Pearl Harbor grown throughout the war and blossomed. And out of the devastation, it paved the way for a new hope, the hope for a just and lasting peace. Sharing in that hope, Japan, once our most reviled enemy, ultimately became one of our staunchest allies. People around the world longed for a lasting peace. 51 countries joined together in an effort to build such a peace. To get today, we strive for that lasting peace. As Americans, we're almost all descendants of the greatest generation, and we have inherited their legacy of hope. It is incumbent upon us to honor it, learn from it, and carry it forward to make our world a more peaceful place. With that legacy also comes the responsibility to stand ready to defend peace. For those of you that served in the past know this, the men and women who wear the nation's uniforms today take that duty as seriously as you did all those years ago. Today, we remember Pearl Harbor and pay tribute to the 2,390 Americans who died here. We reflect on their acts of courage and heroism, both told and untold. We mourn their loss and the lives they never got to live. As we honor them, we also remember that Sunday, December 7th, was just day one. Those that survived day one went on to serve all around the globe, drawing from the strengths from the memories and the sacrifices of those who never left these islands. Many survivors of that infamous Sunday ultimately perished in far off lands. Others survived the four years of war to eventually return home. And we are honored and blessed to have some of them with us here today.
It has been 82 years since that fateful Sunday morning. That is quite literally a lifetime ago. With each passing day, we lose more of our greatest generation. It won't be long before these true heroes that are with us today and at home will only live in our hearts, memories, and history books. So it is only fitting that I close by thanking you. Whenever my Uncle Lou or any other veteran of World War II is recognized or thanked for their service, they humbly answer, we just did what we had to do. Fair enough, but the fact that you did it, the sacrifices you made, the courage and heroism you showed, the determination to succeed that you demonstrated, the lives sacrificed by the fallen, the legacy that you all built remains unmatched in a lesson that keeps on teaching. Let there be no misunderstanding. Without you just doing what you had to do in the victory you won for us all, we would not enjoy the freedom, opportunity, and prosperity we have today. On behalf of a grateful nation, I thank you for the gifts you have given us and the legacy we inherit. May God bless you all, and may God bless America. Amen. That is Captain Ray Howard, great nephew of our last living survivor from the USS Arizona, Lou Conter, with the keynote speech at this year's commemoration on Oahu. If you'd like to watch that complete ceremony, I have a link for you at hometownheroesradio.com. Thanks for listening to Hometown Heroes today. I'm Paul Leffler reminding you that on Pearl Harbor Day and every day, freedom is not free. To let Paul know about a veteran in your life, visit hometownheroesradio.com and click on Suggest a Veteran. Today's program has been brought to you by Provident Payments. Give your business the edge only their personalized service can deliver at providentpayments.com.